is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Hawaii's positivity rate hovers in record territory. Today we are at 17% with some uh, close, with close to some 1,600 new COVID cases. We talk about COVID in the workplace. What are the employer's obligations? This week, the Supreme Court takes up a case on mandatory vaccines. What could this mean locally? We talk to Labor Attorney Jeff Harris. I recommend that every employer that receives information that one of their employees is tested positive, inform any employees or customers that have have been in contact with those employees for some period of time within six feet for 10 or 15 minutes, be notified of that positive test and encouraged to get another test. Whether or not the state still requires quarantine for that situation is a different question. And those rules may be developing. But I, at least from the employer standpoint, I, I recommend that the employer give notice to employees of any, any such exposure. And what are the requirements or the expectations that maybe the rest of the employees uh, who happen to work at the job site be told generally? I think all the other employees would reasonably expect that they be told if they've had exposure and encouraged to go get a test now after an appropriate time. I think this is all going to be fleshed out. The Supreme Court's argument this Friday, U.S. Supreme Court's argument this Friday on the federal vaccine mandates will lend color to the questions you're asking. So how do you see then things changing with these arguments? If the federal mandate stays in place, both what's up for grabs is the federal mandate applicable to employers with 100 or more employees anywhere in the in the U.S. jurisdiction, not just at one place, or healthcare healthcare facilities having either mandate or mandated vaccinations or repeated tests. I think that'll encourage more people to get vaccinated and perhaps there to be less positive test results, perhaps. That's just an aside. I, I think it's important f- for every bit to understand that they should be entitled to notice that they've been exposed. And gosh, I get <laughs> I get a couple notices a day that service people that have been at our house or in our, our business f- facility tested positive and, and it's up to us to decide whether or not we've been close enough to them for a long enough time to go get tested. I think it's a reasonable expectation on both sides. The employers should should identify the location, perhaps not the, if, if there's some way that you can avoid that particular employee. If you were in, if you were in the lunchroom for more than six minutes during this period of time, you could do that. But otherwise, I see a countervailing need to disclose to all workers that they've been exposed. I've got 20 floors in my building. And if, if somebody, if my building manager says, oh, somebody tested positive on the sixth floor and they were in the office from from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. last Friday, well, I wasn't here last Friday. You know, so, so I, I think informing everybody in a facility or everybody that doesn't have a reasonable possibility of close contact of a positive test is overdoing it. I think that the employer, if, if the employer does not know, well, then they may decide to take a reasonable precaution. But these are sort of ad hoc guidelines that are given to us by the, by the state and federal government, but it's, it's basically six feet in, in 15 minutes. So I think there's no reasonable possibility of that length or that breadth of contact, I, I can see an employer deciding that it, it's not appropriate to give the, the notice. The whole then, building yeah. notice. Yeah. Just the departments that may have been affected. Yeah. May have had close contact. Most right. of the employers that I represent are being very cautious. And as a matter of fact, although the 
state says that if an employee decides to test in lieu of getting a vaccination on a weekly basis, the state now says that the employer can have the employee pay for that test, thereby encouraging the employee to get vaccinated. A lot of employers, when it's not that situation, when they just find that there's an exposure, uh, that, that someone may have been in close contact with someone that had symptoms or tested positive. A lot of employers are paying for those tests. And, you know, in the instances where you've got smaller companies, less than 100 employees, uh, because of privacy laws, you know, precluded from asking somebody, have you been vaccinated? Have you been boosted? I'm not sure about that. First of all, the federal government doesn't consider vaccinations medical tests. I'm not sure if if the that that's something that hasn't been decided. I'm not sure if you have a right to privacy about your vaccination status. I haven't seen that established anywhere. I mean, the EEOC does does say that, but it, it, then it goes on to say that except for people that have a reasonable need to know. And so people that are exposed may have a, a reason to know if that person uh, has, has a heightened uh, risk of, of the virus. And what about with the boosters? I mean, does that make it more muddy? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a doctor. You're. You're. You're outside my wheelhouse, Scott. <laughs> no, but 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 just legally, whether you're, you know you can ask whether your employees got the booster shot. I mean, it maybe they got vaccinated six months ago. Yeah. Not even the OSHA regulations say that yet. The OSHA regulations just say you you keep a record of whether or not they, they're fully vaccinated and fully vaccinated is the, is the first two boosters. Okay. So, so that's I guess... something that we need to, be, need to be cleared up. I was heartened by listening to Peter Atia, who's, you know, a rock star physician, has a great, great webcast. And he told the story about last April, he kept his two kids home from school two, two weeks before the lockdown because he didn't know what was going on. And so when you've got you know, hotshot physicians that are talking to the whole nation, admitting that they they really don't know what's going on. And it's not the fear that there was a year ago, but it's still, there's still a, a reason people are being precaution. Right. So the risk is not maybe necessarily low. The risk is unknown and people may just want to be safe rather than sorry. Yeah. You hear from this new strain that more and more people are getting tested positive, but I understand that the symptoms aren't quite as bad. And then can the employer require that an employee be tested if they've been sick before they come back in the building? Yes, yes. Do they have to pay for that test? No. Gosh, so as the Supreme Court then hears the arguments in this case, what could change here? I mean, I think the last time we talked to you, we were talking with uh, the bus, with uh, Oahu Transit. They had a dilemma because they were trying to figure out if they are to require the bus drivers to be tested? Well, the, the, the Supreme Court is going to decide whether or not the federal mandate that 100 or employers with 100 more employees must require their employees to be, to be fully vaccinated or tested once a week. And that, that's pretty much the same in the health. There's a companion case that's a little bit further in development, a, a little bit more complicated in development, but that same question will be argued on the seventh. And so, I, th- I think that'll give a, a lot, lot more clarity, for, at least for the larger empl- employers, to to d- decide whether or not they're going to require mandatory vaccinations or they're going to have still have test outs. I have to say, you know, when the bus initially had their first driver test positive. Um, you know, the city was very transparent and said, yeah, we believe that it was on this route and during this time so that passengers who are on board could decide if they needed to get tested. It's hard for a lawyer to give any hard and fast rules because that's a lot smaller than the building. You know, and you're, you don't know how close you are to the bus driver. You know, nobody keeps records of that. Bus driver doesn't keep records of that. Yeah. Well, we've certainly seen lots of uh, challenges and, and uh, you know, for employers and employees to deal with as we work through this pandemic. But we're looking for more clarity after this week. It should be helpful. And hopefully it sounds like this uh, Omni 
uh, virus is burning through our communities so fast, maybe even those people that don't get vaccinated will get immunity and slow it down. So Delta's still out there, so yep. you know, the folks that are unvaxxed are still at higher risk. Yep, yep. So that's the danger. And then I, just the fact that we don't, we're running out of bed space. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the tiers? Uh, Honolulu dropped the tier system. I think that we should rely on everybody to be responsible. I'm that Dr. Maliam and I are staying home. I'm we're we're cooking a lot more. We we're not frequenting our restaurants. We're not going out as much, and that's because I'm almost 67 and she's 63. But if God bless my son, he's he's 38. If he wants to go out to bar, I I think that's his prerogative. If I could have had my way, I'm not I'm not sure I would have decided on these lockdowns. Mm. But I'm I'm glad that. We're finally through that, and we have a little bit more responsibility given to people to decide what they want to do. That was Jeff Harris, Honolulu labor attorney with the firm Trickles and Katz, Hetherington, Harris, and Norick. As we mentioned, the Supreme Court takes up the issue of mandatory vaccines for businesses with 100 or more employees this Friday. Civil Beats Reality Check today focuses on the return to school after the holiday break. Many worry about the spread of Omicron uh, variant as uh, students go back into the classroom. Education reporter Suvan Lee joins us today. Good morning. Hi, Catherine. So, yeah, lots of uh, families, I think, wringing their hands because they know this uh, variant is a lot more contagious than what we've seen before. Right. So we're we're looking at the return to school for tens of thousands of DOE students today. Teachers came back yesterday, but today is when students return to the classroom after a two-week winter break, which actually happened to coincide with Omicron's vast spread, rapid spread throughout the community and the islands. So it remains to be seen how this could impact schools and um, COVID cases. However, um, what is important to note is that the DOE has remained firm about uh, emphasizing the return to in-person person schools on schedule, um, inter-person instruction on schedule, that is. And so we have been kind of tracking that and seeing what their messaging has been to staff and families out there. Yeah. Uh, interim Superintendent, uh, you know, Kitayashi, I know, you know, sent uh, what letters out to the parents, uh, you know, because we did see learning slip uh, when everybody was working remotely. And I think that's the, the, you know, the consistent concern from DOE officials. It's that academic progress is going to be further stunted if you keep kids out of schools for much longer, in addition to the whole social-emotional component and not to mention all the interruptions to parents' work schedules and having to find childcare if their kids are home unexpectedly. Um, but what, what struck me about Hayashi's uh, letter yesterday was that it comes about a week after his first letter last week to parents, which reminded them that school Schools are um, coming back on um, January 4th and that they're going to continue with in-person. But his letter yesterday really kind of said the same thing without adding much um, anything much um, more updated or new in terms of, well, what are some of these um, bolstered safety protocols? Um, and, and, and I speak to amplified testing, for instance, on school campuses or a wider distribution of face masks at schools, more protected face masks. And I think a lot of um, family members want to see somewhat of a more concerted effort by DOE to provide those kinds of safety mechanisms. But again, it just comes down to each school. Every school is doing kind of its own thing to ensure that kids are safe. And, you know, we did check in with the teachers union uh, several weeks ago, you know, to say, hey, you know, have you heard? Is there a plan? Uh, And they were saying, we've been trying to find out uh, from the DOE as well what the plan is. 
And, and I think that is the um, constant uh, pushback that we're hearing from, um, of course, the teachers' union, the HSTA. Um, what is the contingency plan in the event that we see clusters break out in schools? Um, what is the overarching DOE guidance for schools that find themselves in this inevitable situation with the rise of the Omicron variant? Um, I don't think we know, and I think that lack of communication is what's pestering people even to this day nearly two years into the pandemic. Um, the DOE hasn't really given us many specifics. I've asked what the contingency plan was um, after the deputy superintendent said at a December 16th Board of Education meeting that every school has a contingency plan for if and when a COVID cluster occurs. Yet I didn't get those specifics even when asked. It's just there is a plan, but what is it? So I think that frustration is sort of kind of emanating throughout the DOE community, especially amongst um, you know those closest to the school community itself. So um, hopefully more answers will be provided in the days ahead. Yeah, I think people just want some reassurance. You know, I mean, we've been hearing from some epidemiologists that, hey, you know, you should be double masking right now because it's so contagious. And so what's the plan for the kids? Because not all the kids are vaccinated. Sure. So the latest update from the DOH vaccine dashboard is that about 20 percent of kids 5 to 11 uh, kids 5 to 11 in Hawaii are fully vaccinated. That's only one in five um, compared to a, about a 74% total vaccination rate amongst Hawaii, um, the total population that is. So it's it's low, but I don't think that is very different as far as the kids rate amongst other states. Um, it's it's still being, it's still in progress. Um, let's, let's keep in mind that vaccines for those five and up only began around November. So many of these school-based vaccine clinics are just beginning their second round this weekend. So I'm, I, I expect to see that rate um, go up um, in the in the weeks ahead, but, but still um, um, 20% vaccination rate among kids 5 to 11. And, you know, we are hearing time. across the mainland, too, that there are uh, testing shortages. And so, you know, if we're going to step up testing, you know, are there enough supplies? Uh, lots of things to think about. Mm-hmm. All right. For but thank, sure. Thanks so much, Suvon. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We have been talking to Suvon Lee, education reporter with Honolulu Civil Beat for today's reality check. Read her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mid-Pacific Institute, committed to sparking creativity, celebrating ohana, and unlocking student potential with deeper learning strategies. Accepting applications. Midpac.edu. Silvana Estrada wrote a song about mending a broken heart. She could have recorded it as a big electronic dance mix, but she's gone the other way with the string instruments she grew up with. Of course I was like, oh, that's the music now, so I should do that. But I felt sad having these danceable moments. I was like, I don't feel me. A rising star in Mexico stays true to herself on the world. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to experience treasures of devotion, human connection in secular and sacred art, featuring works from the 14th century to present day. HonoluluMuseum.org The Daughters of Hawaii are offering a chance for you to celebrate in style. Their event, Mu'u at the Museum, will showcase the rich collections of a few lifelong collectors, as well as provide a chance to talk with famed Mu'u designers. Attendees are encouraged to wear their own Mu'u, and there's even a contest for best dressed in three categories, elegant, vintage, and avant-garde. The Daughters of Hawaii are picking up on a wellspring of contemporary interest in Mu'u, 
The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with event chair Alexa Zen about what new life is ahead for this beloved and historic garment. Perhaps historically in my lifetime, and I'm only 38 years old, so I know this is relatively a recent in the past few decades, but people would regard the muumuu as a very relaxed, kitschy, tiki torch type of a tourist luau dress. Every time that I envision people having somewhat of a, a negative image or a very casual and laid-back image of the dress, I would I would always think of it in my mind as, oh, they must be thinking of a muumuu and not a muumuu. <laughs> <laughs> some, obviously, they're the same thing. But I find that it is changing. And I think perhaps maybe a lot more um, in recent years and among the communities that never really grew up with it or gave it much thought before. So perhaps maybe the only introduction or perception that they held of this garment was basically what was perpetuated by, I don't know, I guess like a, you know, a touristy vision of what Waikiki represents, then you compare that to, you know, groups of people and women who have been wearing their entire lives. And I mean, obviously, it's very, it's very different. You know, there's, there is a a fashion to it, there is a following, there is culture and and designers that you follow and keep up with, and you wait to see that what they're going to come up with and design next. And with the upcoming exhibit, what are you representing about Mu'umu'u for a wider audience? So I think the point of our event, Mu'u at the Museum, is to really perpetuate the, the culture and the, um, the community that is surrounding Mu'umu'u. If you were growing up in Hawaii, the Mu'umu'u garment was introduced by Christian missionaries in the 1800s, and it was modeled after a garment that they preferred. And I think historically, or perhaps universally, it's known as a Mother Hubbard dress. That's the origin of the Mu'umu. But clearly, since then, designers and collectors and just people in Hawaii, we've taken that Mother Hubbard dress, that traditional look that was introduced by the missionaries, and we've changed it. We've made it our own. We've uh, imposed our own style, fabrics, colors, to make it, I guess, really reflect the, the diversity of people in Hawaii while also honoring, you know, Hawaiian culture and fashion. So um, the history itself has always been what it is, but the culture that surrounds it, to me at least, it has been vibrant and evolving. Are there any other designers that you worked with in putting this exhibition together that you want to highlight or invite people to learn more about? Yes, there are um, a couple designers that we've invited who are still making Mu'umu'u. So Betty Mu'u is one of them. They've been around for some time, currently owned by um, Nola and Linda Nahulu. And uh, another designer that we're featuring is Nake'u Awai. And actually, he often uses Betty Mu'u patterns and then designs his own fabric and then um, will make a Mu'umu'u with his own unique fabric, but... uh, using a Betty Mu'u pattern. And I think, I feel like those two designers have just been benchmarks in this fashion industry. Uh, I'm so happy that they're still here. And, you know, I know that um, they are getting older. So now is the time to really appreciate them and give them all the aloha that we can. Mm. And um, Princess Ka'iulani is also going to be featured at our event. And um, what's interesting is, um, we've been telling people that Princess Ka'iulani will be there, and usually the response I get is, oh, I didn't realize that they are still in business. And thankfully they are. They, you know, ownership was transferred, I think, perhaps during the pandemic, but Princess Ka'iulani is still around making boo And every time I talk to people about it, a lot of women still have their Princess Ka'iulani boo in their closet. So that's the reason to come out and check out this exhibit. And then... Um, a designer who is from the who predominantly designed in I believe in the eighties and nineties, Pumana Crab. She um, is going to be there as well, which I mean if you follow Mu'umu'u, that is pretty exciting in and of itself because it's almost like this designer who had a little cult following is going to be making an appearance. We're also gonna be having some dresses out of the archives of Ilani Sportswear. Unfortunately they, they just closed down during the pandemic, but uh, I, I don't know if they've really made 
traditional mu'u for some time. They had a lot of modern aloha wear recently. But they're bringing out vintage mu'u that they designed back, I believe, in the 60s and 70s. So that should be really exciting, too. Wow, it's quite a range. It's exciting to be able to see this one garment through all these different iterations throughout the decades. Yes, yes, I think so, too. I think so, too. And even if you don't follow, you know, this fashion or these designers, it's not like it's never too late to learn. I mean, you know, it's I think it's going to be a cool event just because um, even though these designers are making right now, we've asked them to uh, showcase some really unique designs, you know, any designs that they've ever made over the years, you know, bring them out of the vaults. So um, that's what they're in the process of doing right now. So I believe they're coming up with dresses that I I know I've never seen before, and I'm excited to to see them. And then um, and then also these designers, they're going to be there at the event, standing right next to their dresses that are being beautifully displayed on mannequins or live models. So, I mean, it, it basically, we're creating this opportunity where you can have a conversation with these designers. Of course, a safe conversation, you know, because this event is going to be primarily outdoors and the portions that are indoors, of course, we're going to be requiring masks because we want everyone to feel safe. But really, I mean, how often do you get to have the opportunity to talk with a, you know, a designer who hasn't come up with new clothing for like 20 or 30 years? I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. Even just to, to talk to them, to ask them what inspires them, what motivated them, what drives them, what's their passion. I just think it's a really nice way. Again, like I said, this event, it's, it's less so about... Um, encouraging sales and more about cultivating the connections and and, and conversations and relationships. Mm, and maybe encouraging people to go dig out a garment that has been in their closet that they maybe have not interacted with in a while. Yes, absolutely. In fact, we're encouraging people if they have any in their closets or, or you know any type of lovely aloha wear that they would like to wear, mm. dust it off, bring it out of the closet, you know, a nice opportunity to get dressed up and and just kind of remember, you know, we live in Hawaii and there's been a lot of changes during this pandemic, but even before then, right? So sometimes it's, it's nice to have a reminder of what makes us unique and special. And I think that mu'umu'u, as well as really any part of Hawaii's culture, is what makes us unique and it's, and it's worth celebrating. Do you have a mu'umu'u already picked out for the event? I do. And in fact, we're hosting two events. So one at Panaya Kamalama, the Queen of Summer Palace on Oahu, and then um, another event at Hulihe'e Palace in Kailua Kona. So I have my my dresses picked out for both of the events. Do you want to give us a little sneak peek? Sure. So for the Oahu event, um, I'm going to be wearing a black Alan Akina off the shoulder that actually was given to me by my mother. It used to be hers, but she saved it and then she gave it to me. It's lovely. And I love that I have a story to tell about it too. I, I didn't buy it. It was, it was my mother's. And then for the Kona event, I purchased a new It looks rather holomu'u in that sense. It's a bit more formal, but from Princess Ka'ilani. And I purchased two matching ones for my daughters who will also be attending the Kona event. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I love the idea that this is an event for people to, one, speak to designers of mu'u about their process, but also talk to other people who have had mu'u that are maybe like yours, maybe that they, they got from their mothers or other family members, or maybe they bought for a specific event some years ago, and this is the first time they've worn it since then, and just sharing all of those stories in that, in that particular community around one piece of clothing. Yes, yes. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's what I think is so really cool about this culture. Everyone has their own unique story for how they got into it. And it's always so personal and it's so unique. And, and it's just really cool to hear other people speak to that. You know, so January is Mu'umu'u month. So regardless of the event that we're hosting, I mean, dust it off and wear it out to run errands or something. I mean, <laughs> I think you'd be surprised at like how many joyful reactions you will receive. I get stopped in parking lots. <laughs> when I'm when I'm just like running errands wearing a mu'u'u. I mean, it's a conversation starter. 
That was Alexa Zen, treasurer of the Daughters of Hawaii, speaking with the conversation, Savannah Harriman Pote. Mu'u at the museum will be held on the evening of January 15th at the uh, Queen Emma Summer Palace on Oahu. Big Island residents will have a chance to see the showcase as well on January 22nd at Hulia'e Palace in Kailua, Kona. You can find more information on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. You want to stay connected with what's happening in your backyard and across the state. That's why HPR has launched the Island Insider email newsletter. It's a weekly roundup of local news stories you might have missed, sent to your inbox every Friday morning, with reporting on everything from government to the environment to local arts, all by HPR's award-winning reporters. Sign up is easy and free at hawaiipublicradio.org forward slash newsletter. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outrigger Hotels and Resorts, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land, outrigger.com. season to raise your glass, whether it's wine or hard liquor, just the season of spirits. Today we spotlight shochu, a spirit most often made of sweet potato. The Haleiwa small craft business opened its doors almost a decade ago. It recently expanded its offerings to include gin. We talked to Ken Harata of a Hawaiian shochu company located on Oahu's North Shore. Many people ask me what's the difference between uh, sake and shochu, yeah? Uh, both are native to Japan, and uh, sake is a brewed alcoholic beverage like wine or beer. Shochu is a distilled spirit, uh, similar to whiskey, vodka, gin, rum, Korean soju. So the sake is brewed, shochu is distilled. That's the main difference between those two. Is the yeah. alcohol content higher then? That's true. Shochu is much drier and stronger. And so tell us... How you got into this business? Because you've been around for a while. Yeah, this is our ninth year, and uh, we're gonna be. It's gonna be the tenth year next year. The reason is Poi. Poi brought me here. Yeah, one day when I was visiting Hawaii from Japan, I was eating Poi, and then I thought, oh, if they have something like this in Hawaii, maybe we can make shochu because Poi is a fermented food from roots of taro. But that time I was just joking with my friends. I didn't know anything about making shochu. But the, the idea came back to me uh, like 10 years later, and I thought, oh, it would be fun to make shochu in Hawaii. So I became uh, an apprentice under my master in Kagoshima and learned uh, shochu making from him, and now I'm making shochu in Hawaii. Wow. So it was that difficult to do, to learn under a master like that? Yeah. Uh, it was like a kung fu movie. You <laughs> have to knock the door of the master and uh, beg to become his uh, apprentice student. And, uh, of course, I got rejected many times and, until I finally got accepted. And so how long did you study under him before you moved here to the islands? Oh, I was with him for three years. That was a crash course because I was almost like 40 years old those, ta- those, those days. So he said, um, stay with me for three years. Um, and then you can be independent because if she said uh, if you stay longer, it's gonna be, you're gonna be too old to start your own business. And so when you came to Hawaii, how did that all work? Because you had to find enough sweet potato to make a go of it. Yeah, actually, many varieties of sweet potatoes all over available all over Hawaii. And I didn't have any difficulties to find sweet potatoes here in Hawaii. And then the fact that, you know, you've set up shop on the North Shore. I understand you also do tours? Yeah, I do tours. But this place is more like a one-man operation. I'm the only one. 
So I do tours only when I have time, maybe once or twice a week. And so how would you explain the type of shochu that you produce there? Oh, uh, that's a good question. We apply a traditional handcraft shochu making technique that I learned from my master in Japan. But uh, all the elements of Hawaii is in a shochu. So our shochu made from Hawaii-grown sweet potatoes with Hawaii water and everything is so special compared to the ones from Japan. So how different would it be? Many people say ours has a distinctive aroma compared to the ones from Japan. I think all the elements of Hawaii, like the sea breeze, the soil conditions, the climate conditions, that influences our shochu. I understand that you also just recently started distilling a gin. Yeah, I try to source ingredients as local as possible, yeah? And in order for me to introduce more Hawaii-grown produce, I thought gin would be a great idea because we can use all the botanicals. So we use the Hawaii-grown botanicals, including jabon, tea leaves, hibiscus flowers, limu from the ocean, those kinds of produce from Hawaii. And then what makes gin different from shochu? Ah, what makes gin, gin is juniper berries. We added juniper from Italy, but other than that, we added all the Hawaii-grown botanicals. So if you add botanicals to the shochu, that becomes, including the juniper berries, that becomes gin. Okay, so yeah, so it just gets a little bit more complicated. Yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult for me to explain all over the radio. Well, what do you think your teacher would say if he tried ah. some of your gin and your shochu? I don't know. Did you send him any? Actually, before this pandemic started, he came to Hawaii every year. He uses me as an excuse to visit Hawaii. <laughs> and every time he came, he, of course, tried my shochu. The funny thing is he didn't say anything. So far, he hasn't said anything. Ah, I think that's a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the fact that he comes back again and again. Yeah, every year he used to come to visit us. How much of the shochu and the gin do you produce, and, and where can people find your product? We produce 6,000 bottles of shochu every year, which is a very small scale. And um, our shochu and gin are available at the production site in Haleiwa only because we don't distribute to any retail stores or we don't even ship uh, due to the limited volume of production. So people have been really supportive and kind. They come all, all the way to Haleiwa to pick up their orders. And so what do you pair it with? Oh, good question. Shochu is really dry compared to sake, so rich flavored food like curry chicken, shoyu pork, Miso butterfish, that type of rich flavored food, pair really, really good with shochu on the rocks. Oh, that sounds really good. <laughs> My taste buds are, are, are salivating. And then what about the gin? Oh, gin you can enjoy by itself. But our gin is really, really soft. So many people enjoy just on the rocks, but you can make it to cocktails with tonic water. I mean, gin and tonic, or many people make it to martini. And, you know, we did get a chance to talk to a gentleman who was making spirits with things like ulu. Do you experiment with other things besides sweet potato? Yeah, we have tried ulu. We made shochu with ulu once, and we made shochu with pineapple and uh, sweet potatoes and all kinds of uh, Hawaii produce. So this time we made ginya, so we were able to use those botanicals from Hawaii also. So it sounds like you're having a lot of fun <laughs> with your business. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the fact um, that, that you'll be yep. celebrating your 10th year. So as you reflect back on that first bite of poi when you discovered huh. Hawaii and what it had to offer, share your thoughts about that. Hawaii has been really kind and supportive to us. So we are so happy to make sure to in Hawaii, surrounded by people in Hawaii and all the supporters. Yeah, we are so grateful. And so we say kampai to Ken Hirata of the Hawaiian Shochu Company, located in Haleiwa. You can find his products at his shop or at select island restaurants. Look for links on our website.
Support for HPR comes from the Queen's Health Systems, committed to the community's health, providing vaccinations that help to protect against COVID-19. Learn more by calling Queen's Vaccination Line at 808-691-2222. They're back. <laughs> we'll make you an honorary money lady. <laughs> oh, man, I feel like I want to go battle. <laughs> Inflation, rate hikes, tax credits, and more. Our money ladies, Michelle Singletary and Rana Faruhar, guide us through what's to come in 2022. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join us on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, FerraroChoi.com. We have just closed out 2021, but we think back on those who we have lost this past year. You know, we featured a conservation canine known as Solo on this show a couple of years ago. We recently learned he died of cancer. Solo was a pioneering detection dog. He worked high atop Mauna Kea looking for seabird burrows down in the taro patches of Kauai, as well as in remote atolls of the Pacific. We talked to Kyoko Johnson, his handler, about what made this pioneering detection dog worth remembering. Sola started his career out as a wind farm ecological detection dog, you know, looking for bats and bird fatalities. But after we left that job and I adopted him, we got hired to do an avian botulism detector dog project in Hanalei. National Wildlife Refuge, and the idea behind that project was to use dogs to quickly find koloa maoli or Hawaiian duck carcasses to prevent the spread of avian botulism. It's a paralytic disease that kills the ducks, and no dog had, I don't think, ever been used, at least detection dogs, in a Hawaii wildlife refuge before, so that was in itself kind of a new thing. So we got hired to do that. We flew over to Kauai and, you know, we had to do a lot of, not trial and error, but figuring out what's going to work in order to make that project work. We had to put the dogs on leash, you know, because there's a lot of sensitive birds there. And we borrowed the idea of the New Zealand conservation dog muzzles, which allow the dogs to pant with their mouth fully open, you know, so that they're working long hours. They can still pant, drink water, but, you know, it's an extra layer of protection for the birds. So there are a lot of things that we tried out in order to figure out what would work best. So Solo got to, you know, kind of be the first dog to do that. and He's a founding fighter. Yeah, the <laughs> founding father. And now they have a volunteer program at the refuge where there's four dogs being trained or conducting surveys to do that. So they kind of gave him that name. <laughs> I mean, that's really neat, you know, because when you think you set the framework, the foundation for the programs to grow. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of it that way when we were doing it. We were just hired to do the job, and I was just doing the best that we could. But looking back on his life now and what I've done with him, I do feel like we set the foundation for other work like that to happen in the Hawaiian Islands, so I'm happy about that. Yeah, and then when I first met you, we were out on a hunt for uh, devil weed. <laughs> right, yeah, so that was right before the Hawaii Conservation Conference, which we hosted. Another thing that we did to kind of facilitate the further use of conservation dogs here in Hawaii. But yeah, Solo was the probably the first dog that we trained on devil weed because it was a new program at the time. We didn't know how good the dogs would be at finding this invasive plant. And because he's my dog, he always gets to be the experimental <laughs> dog. So yeah, he trained on devil weed. We did go out into the field and we were able to find some, which showed me that with the right training, this target was good for the dogs. So that's kind of how we started the program. With devil weed, that's hazardous to cattle. Yes, it could be if ingested in larger quantities. So that's one of the reasons they want to prevent the spread to agricultural areas. And then Solo was able to spend quite a bit of time on the Big Island, right? He also went to Mauna Kea. He did. That was actually the last project that he worked on. And it was amazing, both for him and for myself. It was like 9,000-plus elevation Mauna Kea looking for endangered seabird burrows. 
it was challenging physically, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and I've I've seen the picture. So describe to our listeners, you know, the getup that he had to be in to be at that altitude. Sure. Well, first of all, you know, we had to make sure that we were physically fit to do that because of the high elevation. But he also had to wear some uncomfortable booties <laughs> to protect his paws from the sharp lava. You know, honestly, there aren't that many good dog booties out there commercially made. So we tried two different ones while we were up there, and neither one really was right for us. So I've been talking to some local wetsuit companies to see if maybe they can build something more like a surf booty that's comfortable. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, but like you said, a lot of it's trial and error to figure out, you know, what works, what doesn't. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not researching these booties and stuff just for myself, but also to hopefully share with other dog owners and conservation dog people around the world. And so had they done a lot of work with um, detection dogs up there at Mauna Kea? No, this was the first time on Mauna Kea, actually, and Hopefully there will be more of that because I think it's a really important job. But there had been another dog handler team going to Mauna Loa for the last several years, and that's been successful for a Bandrump Storm Petrol. What's involved, you know, when you do go to these heights with the dogs? I mean, how long can you stay up there? Because, you know, you, you can get, like, the altitude sickness. Right. So the elevation that we went to fortunately did not cause any altitude sickness. I think if you're higher than, I don't know, 11,000 or something, it would. But fortunately, we were a little bit lower. So that wasn't a concern. But I think it depends on the location and the project, how long you can stay up there. In our case, we stayed for a full week. And we were lucky to have um, a place to stay up there, but that's not always the case. And I think other teams, like the one that went to Mauna Loa, did day trips. So it really just varies. It varies. Like sometimes you have to be helicoptered in or you know, that type of thing. And so, gosh, when you do get a, an assignment, let, let's go back to the, the hoary bats and the birds that were tied to the wind farm project. For that type of a program, like how long does that last? They started that probably in 2011 or so, or at least the pilot project was then. And now it's 2021. It's been 10 years and it's still going strong. And they're not doing high intensity monitoring. It's less area that they're monitoring now, but it's still happening in two wind farms on Oahu. They added a third one. And I know that the Maui wind farm has that program as well as Big Island. So as more wind farms get proposed and put in, then there's going to be a need for these types of detection dogs. Yes, and I think it's been proven that the dogs are highly effective in these wind farm environments. So, yeah, it's kind of a no-brainer for them to use the dogs. So I guess, you know, when you think about what Solo's been able to do in his short life, because he was just shy of 10 years. He was nine and a half. He also went to Johnston Atoll, um, I guess which is not technically Hawaii, but it's considered one of the remote atolls of Hawaii and worked on a, you know invasive ant detection project. So that was also the first time a you know detection dog had been to the remote atolls. And the project manager, Aisha, was saying that it hopefully sets the foundation for others to do more dog work in the remote islands because because your business is tied to mm -hmm. really conservation and using dogs in this way, it's a big loss having Solo gone now. Mm -hmm. But what's the plan for going forward? I mean, are there a lot of dogs out there that you could that could segue into your program, or do you have to start with a puppy? Sure. So there are many options to, you know, moving forward. I do have one dog at home. He's three, and he's done some detection work as well. But he doesn't have quite the drive that Solo <laughs> did, so I am in the process of actively looking for you know, a replacement for Solo. I've been fortunate that with our nonprofit organization, I started a program where volunteer dog handlers participate to find devilweed and other targets, and these volunteers are just amazing. Their dogs have tons of drive. The volunteers are very motivated to assist in this conservation effort. And so I don't have to be the only one with a dog doing the work. The volunteers are doing amazing work. And my goal is to recruit more people, train more people so that, you know, others can do this work as well, because there's just so many different applications for dogs and I can't do them all alone. So yeah, definitely there's other dog handler teams. But as for myself, I am looking into getting a new dog. <laughs> Some people adopt adult dogs from shelters. On the mainland, they do that a lot. It's a little bit harder to do so in Hawaii just because we're so isolated. And, you know, you, don't, you can't always find the right dog for the job. It's not like adopting a pet dog. 
they need to have certain criteria in order to be able to do the hard work. So I am looking into puppies right now and possibly from Australia. So what kinds of things do you look for? What are the traits? Sure, yeah. So there are a lot. I mean, for one thing, you want them to be sociable with people and other dogs and not have any fear issues because that can really take away from the job that you have to do. So you want them to be confident, which part of it is raising them the right way, but a lot of it is genetics as well. Hunt drive is what we call the desire to search for something and, you know, keep searching and searching. <laughs> so it's not just about the find, but they enjoy hunting. And a lot of the sporting dog breeds like the uh, retrievers and pointers and stuff, they were bred to do that. So, you know, you don't have to convince them. They just love to do that. And for me, you know, because we work in the conservation field, there's a lot of birds and wildlife out there that we're trying to help, and they're in the environment as well. So you want a dog that is going to be okay ignoring those things and doing what you ask of them. So it really takes a special canine to do this kind of work. Yeah, so the right dog needs to be selected, and then you have to train them the right way as well. We have been talking with Kyoko Johnson of Conservation Canines. And, you know, at this point in the story, we propose a toast to remember Solo and play a clip of him barking. But, you know, he wasn't that kind of dog. He was trained not to bark when he found his target. But we do have a clip of him slurping from his water dish, and so we will leave you with that. Good boy. It's hot out there, yeah, isn't it? Not is. solo. <laughs> Our four-legged hunter friend enjoying a nice, deserved water break. This one's for you, Solo. it up for today. Tomorrow, we plan to hear from John DeFries of the Hawaii Tourism Authority. What to do about marketing Hawaii with Omicron circulating? What do you think? Share your comments or questions about what you've heard by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.